You're listening to Energy Insiders, a weekly update on clean energy and climate policy with Renew Economies editor Giles Parkinson and leading energy analyst David Leach. Energy Insiders is brought to you by Evergen, providing cutting-edge energy management software for battery optimisation, virtual power plants and distributed energy resources. And Pylon, helping solar installers and retailers design high-resolution solar proposals in minutes. Hello and welcome to this latest episode of the Energy Insiders podcast. My name is Giles Parkinson. I'm the editor of Renew Economy, along with the driven and one step off the grid. And joining me as usual, but unusually on a cycling trip in Victoria, is ITK Principal David Leach. David, I trust you are well and not too out of breath. No, Giles. Uh, looking forward to uh, hopefully what might happen over the next week and uh, in some regional Victoria. Although I wish, must say, I wish there was a bit more. It's pretty hard if you get off the main road, but let's keep going. Yes, look, I did. Um, yes, well, we won't talk about um, EV charging um, networks at the moment, but let's hope that whichever government gets re- get elected or re-elected um, come Saturday that um, they make a big improvement to those. David, look, I thought I might just charge while you were peddling you like mad this afternoon across the hills and the valleys of Victoria. I got to speak with Oliver Yates. Um, I thought it was a good opportunity. He's the former CEO of the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, a former independent candidate for the seat of Kuyong and is now the CEO of Sentient Impact Management. So it's got a lot to say about the sort of um, transition in Australia, the politics and um, some of the investment capabilities. So let's have a listen to what Oliver Yates said earlier today. Oliver Yates, thank you very much for joining the Energy Insiders podcast. Thank you, Giles. It's great to be here with everybody. Look, um, I think just over three years ago, or about three years ago, you were out in the campaign tri- trail, um, sort of handing out how to vote camp, um, leaflets for yourself. Are you missing the cut and thrust of the political um, arena? Uh, look, I, um, I thoroughly enjoyed it last time, uh, Giles, but um, there is clearly uh, um, a movement on uh, and a great opportunity to, to bring really capable uh, women candidates to the market. And... Um, and we have a fantastic candidate now, um, Monique Ryan, which I was involved in helping select you know, through a community process. And, uh, you know, the election is on Friday. So, yes, I'm handing out how to vote cards and running polling booths. And uh, I think it's an incredibly exciting time for, uh, for a democ- our democracy. I think it's drifted away with um, too many members of parliament really just talking their, uh, their own party rather than their own, their own electorate. Um, and this movement towards independence uh, reflects a desire for um, the people who live in the electorate to have a member who represents uh, their beliefs, their values and their aspirations uh, rather than, you know, those of, um, of um, that the might be very alien to them. So, so it's a big change. The teal independence, as they're called, as, and my wife is very pleased. She was the one who came up with the teal. Um, she's an interior decorator and we were combining green and, uh, green and uh, blue at the, time, at the time I was mucking around at the time. But uh, I'm very pleased to see it continuing, uh, continuing on. Uh, yeah, look, just one smart, a small clarification there. I think you might have said Friday accidentally for the election day, so it's definitely Saturday. It is um, definitely Saturday. Sorry, tomorrow's Friday. <laughs> <laughs> and this podcast will be published on Friday, so only a day out. Terrible time to make predictions, particularly yeah. when the podcast might only be listened to after the result and going, what were they thinking? Look, do you have a sense of what's um, likely to happen? And, and I guess the question is, no matter what happens, ha- have or will the Teal Independence 
I guess it's too, it's, it's, it's too hard to know. But, but in what way can they change the political debate? But um, first of all, I mean, stick your neck out. What do you think is going to happen in Kuyong? Look, in Kuyong, I think um, Monique will actually win. Um, and my analysis is, you know, you, you always look at things from your own side, right, Giles? So unfortunately, that's the way, way you look at stuff. But, but I, I needed a 16% swing. It was the safest seat in Victoria when I stood. And, um, and I, got, I got a 10% swing. And so that means that there's only six more to go. I don't think there is a single person who uh, voted um, for me who won't vote for Monique. And um, Monique is an incredibly well-connected candidate uh, who is obviously female, as her name suggests, um, uh, working, uh, you know, sophisticated, uh, educated uh, females are clearly looking for a new, a new home to vote for. Uh, I think she'll pick up the extra 6%. So I know it's difficult to believe that, that you could, um, in, in a couple of elections, you could turn over effectively the safest seat or the safest seat in Victoria. But, but I, I think there's a real movement that's, that's, that's occurring here. And, um, you know, I think it'll be good. What does this mean for the Liberal Party then if um, Josh Frydenberg or some other so-called moderate Liberals lose their seats to these um, teal independents? Where does the Liberal Party go from here? Does it sort of lurch further to the right because that's kind of who's left or does it sort of reform, regather and try and retake that centre? Well, my my own um, probable, probable view is, is, is really that they should... Um reform and try and come back to the centre. But um, that's what I've been trying to encourage them to do for uh, <laughs> for a very long time until I gave up. Um, but you're right, uh, many people who I talk to suggest that um, uh, if the moderates are continually gutted at a federal level, then the federal side may go off to the right. But, but the problem we've got, Giles, is that in individual states, it's a completely different story. Like in South Australia, they're relatively normal. In New South Wales, they're relatively normal. Um, it's, it's a real federal dilemma at the moment that the Liberal Party looks so different to what many Liberals would have expected, I think. Mm. You're a former uh, Chief Executive of the Clean um, Energy Finance Corporation, of course, and look a long career in banking, um, Macquarie Bank in particular before that. And since then, you have now re-emerged as a CEO of Sentient Impact Group. And we'll, we'll get on to what Sentient is about um, shortly. How important is this election or the result of this election for the green energy transition in Australia? Because we get quite excited about some of the notable achievements in this transition, you know, the uptake of roof, rooftop solar, the, the extraordinary um, lead shown by South Australia, a 64% wind and solar in the last um, year, sort of against all predictions. Um, you know, the introduction of battery storage, Aemo predicting that by 2025, we might be running at 100% renewables at certain times of the day. By 2030, we might be 80% renewables. But when you actually look at it, at the moment, we seem to be stuck a long way behind um, other OECD countries. Um, um, how do we kind of? There just seems to be blockages everywhere, despite the sort of the roll-on of technology. How do, how, how do we resolve this? Well, look, I think there are policy blockages, <laughs> Giles, and they've been going on for a long period of time. And it's against those policy blockages that the um, the renewable machine has continued on powering through in Australia and. I mean, that's what we'll get on to talk about a little bit. I mean, I am so excited today and I hope we get a chance to talk about it. But what's been announced in Europe is just mind boggling uh, today. And um, it is, it is, you know, it's almost like Europe's being put on a, on a war footing 
ostensibly for Russia, but actually it's a it's a you know it's a carbon war footing that was being announced today, which is really quite extraordinary. So I all I know is that if you you know I look back at history, I just I just thought back at the time from when when I joined the CEFC to today and looked through the the policies that have been trumped, tra- tra- drawn out by this government. And then I look forward to what's just been announced in Europe today and um, you couldn't contrast the difference. So so whilst uh, everybody you know, could be trying to hold Australia back or hold this transition back, there is nothing that's going to hold it back. It's, it's, it's indelible, this transition is going to come and, and the only thing for Australians uh, is are we going to enjoy uh, a part of this transition or are we going to keep people hidden in dark corners and caves and then suddenly surprise them and they'll go, oh, my God, I didn't have time to make the transition. My career's not in place. We've lost the skills. We don't have those skills in Australia. We'll have to import everything. Is that what's mm-hmm. going to happen here? And, uh, and, I'm, and I'm very worried that without a change of government, that's exactly what what will happen. I mean, you know, Josh, think back. You know, 2013, I was joining the CEFC. And Abbott was there scrapping the carbon price and people were dancing in Parliament and, and they were killing, they were announcing the ERF, they were trying to kill the CESD, but the RET and ARENA, you know, and then, and then you know, it was only in 2017, so that was like that whole exercise. In 2017, they were all, you know, hamming it up in Parliament with their lump of coal and then we had the wonderful Finkel review with a clean energy target and that got shot and then we had the neg which was a total joke and that went nowhere and then we had the government refusing to extend the neg and then we had the big bank polyp bash up the banks because they weren't lending to coal and then we had the crazy scenario that we we're going to underwrite coal-fired power stations and then we had a parliamentary inquiry in 2019 you know saying we're going to have nukes oh my god and then in 2019 we had this wonderful claim that you know we keep our commitments and we're not changing our commitment to 2030 and that's where we stand today with the same 2030 target but it goes on you know it's just like a, it, it just goes on then we had the ng and and now we have the gas led recovery and then we had you know technology and not taxes we're exhausted by this and in all of that we've done absolutely nothing and then we say to ourselves Yes, we've got a zero commitment to 2050, 2050 zero commitment. And then you ask any of them and they say, oh, yeah, that's with wiggle room, right? So we don't have to meet it. Um, whereas what's happening in the rest of the world is extraordinary. And I, and I was mentioning this at that conference that you, you picked me up on and asked me about, you know, where do I think hydrogen's going? Because I was a, you know, you made mockery of me a while ago, a long time ago, Giles, when, you know, the first comment on me about hydrogen because I was speaking at a, a hydrogen oh. conference. A long time ago, and no, I, I, I'm just, I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna stop you right there, and Oliver. I don't think I made a mockery. I just sort of, well, I, well, I tried not to, but because you, you and Ross Garner, I remember because it was out at the Sydney Technology Park, and it was one of the first that, that's conferences, right. that was and right. everyone was yeah, talking about. Yes, yes, absolutely. And, um, but, but people <laughs> were standing up in that conference room, basically saying hydrogen is a solution looking for a problem, or a problem looking for a solution. All those. All those type of things, but 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 where we are now is Australia is 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 really you know we, we have this had this huge opportunity of this hydrogen economy isn't this great and they're talking about it, but they've talked about it and they started talking about COVID and I know we all disappeared for two years because basically we've been hermits for two years, but we did nothing right and nothing's really been happening and and there's a few projects people are talking about. But in all of that time, the world has just raced on and we're sitting here as Australia with an incredible opportunity to create 
long, indelible, sustainable, good quality jobs right across the nation, and we're not focused on it. You know, we're not we're we're, we're focusing on it in a political kind of slant, but we're seriously not focusing on it on the way that other countries are focusing on it. And, yeah. and, and but yeah, we hear so much in Australia though. Um, look, just to sort of just to wrap back a little bit, um, you talked about Europe, and um, it was really interesting actually. They basically up their renewable energy target for twenty thirty to forty five percent from forty percent, and just point out that that actually includes all energy, so not just um not just electricity from the grid. And part of that was like 600 gigawatts of solar in Europe by 2030, which sounds like an extraordinary amount of um, of, of, of solar in, in, in such a continent and basically sort of points to the fact that if anything, this Russian invasion of Ukraine is going to actually accelerate this transition away from fossil fuels. It's bigger than that, Charles. It's bigger than that. And I think that's the interesting part. People need to read through that really, really carefully. It's they've announced in their plan to produce 10 million tonnes of green hydrogen in Europe by 2030 and to import a further 10 million tonnes. So that 20 million tonnes requires the additional construction around the world of 600 gigawatts of renewables. That's just what they're saying now, 600 gigawatts of both wind and solar and 200 gigawatts of renewables, uh, 200 gigawatts of, of electrolyzers. Uh, they've announced that they're going to spend, actually pay, directly pay $27 billion to get up to a stage, 20 billion euros, so they can get to the stage where they're producing 17.5 gigawatts of electrolyzers a year by 2025. They've gone, you know, they, they have absolutely, in this policy, you need to read it for, for the statement to what it is. It is extraordinary step forward here in relation to, to what their commitments are. And, that, and, that's, and that's the difference, Giles, of what's going on around the world. We led here in Australia a bit in renewables because we use contracts of differences, right, CFDs, you know, uh, reverse auctions for solar and wind. Well, they're doing that in, in Europe. That's what, how they're going to mobilise and that's how they're going to mobilise 600 gigawatts of, of renewables so that they can get 20 million tonnes a year of hydrogen by 2030, is they're going to do that, and they're going to do that through a reverse auction ar arrangement. Um, so, and, 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 you know, whilst I'm really excited about that, it's not too dissimilar to what's happening in other parts of the world, except in Australia, we, we hear crickets going, you know, in, in relation to... Mm hydrogen you know you, you, you but by, by crickets i'm just contrasting between what is happening overseas and what's happening in australia we're hearing here because we're all landlocked here and we still haven't really got on planes because we're all worried we're going to get COVID again but we're not hearing what's going on overseas and, and i just went around and had a look at the policy you know uh, arrangements overseas now the european one that came out today is absolutely extraordinary but still you know japan has a three million ton policy by 2030 and a fleet policy for vehicles. So does Korea. Oman's got a one gigawatt policy for hydrogen by, by 2025 and a 10 gigawatts by 2030. Morocco's got 2.5 gigawatts. These are all government fixed, but they're gonna actually do it. You know, in Australia, me, 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 we're still talking about, we're gonna have these big projects. I don't think we're understanding the scale of the opportunity that we're not focusing on.
So what does that mean? Because we hear a lot of Andrew Forrest uh, talking about the scale of um, the projects that he wants to do. And we've got things like the Asia Renewable Energy Hub and the Western Green Energy Hub, which is um, a sort of a combination of intercontinental CWP Macquarie yeah. investors. Yeah. But I mean, do they, is that because it's not part of a government-led strategy or a government target that they might sort of find themselves sort of swimming um, against the well, current or, or how well, do they fit in? Well, you know, you, we, we've seen how the Asia Renewable Energy Hub was treated um, when it came around to having, you know, an environmental question. Now, what did they do? The, they basically said, we're not even going to consider your project anymore. I mean, that's, that's the kind of engagement that they got there with the Asian Renewable Energy Hub. But, you know, they're big projects. But remember where they are, Giles, some of these ones are in, you know, complex areas to build. We're talking about very, you know, they're a long way away. They're in very remote areas. Some of the, you know, and, and we've got all the labour costs and the, you know, there, there's a lot of challenges in building these large scale projects uh, in Australia. But all I know is from looking at, if you talk to those developers now, they, they were first here in Australia and this is where it started. It started in Australia, really, it was the Asian Renewable Energy Hub that really started it. And it was, um, it was Continental Energy and, 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 uh, and, um, uh, what, what's the CWP? Yeah, CWP, and, and I was involved in, in that. And we were talking about what, what what is making hydrogen like. It's like it's like mining, mate. Right? You're getting a resource here. You, you get the world's best resource, and you can now convert it and export it. So it's a bit like a mining project. So you go around the world, find these big projects. So in Australia, it was we we were leading. And if you if you ask them now, their types of policies. If you ask those groups, their types of projects around the world. Um, they've got projects now that they didn't have before. Australians were the first. Australians were the first projects, but they have other projects now around the world which have accelerated and are now running much faster than the Australian projects. I know many projects of giga scale that are now. I'd be putting them in the pecking order of which one's going to get turned on first. The Australian projects are just clunking their way down that list like a ta old taxi meter used to turn over. As all the other projects click their way up the list, the Australian projects are starting to click their way down because we're not taking it seriously enough in Australia. So let's turn to Sentient Impact Group. You are now CEO. It's a newly formed group. Um, what is it proposing to do? Where is it proposing to invest? How is it proposing to unlock investment elsewhere? Well, Giles, I'm quite excited about this because this is kind of another another step. I mean, what I learned at the CEFC is that um, that with money, uh, with the use of capital, you can generate really positive external benefits and still retain um, a return and uh, get a good return for investors or the taxpayers in that in that circumstance. Um, but what I've also appreciated over a, a time, a time, obviously, I'm a, an old banker. Um, and, and just remember it was a banker, um, uh, just just think, think through that, that to be honest, um, we've not a thing gets built, you know, not an environment gets damaged, not a mine gets opened, you know, not a forest gets cut down without the engagement of the banking system. So, so banking uh, and the pr production of capital uh, can't divorce itself from the climate calamity and the environment calamity that we now have. If... We'd all been responsible and ensured that the money that was used uh, by companies whom we lend to was used in a way that generated a net positive return to society as well as a you know net financial return, then the planet and society wouldn't be in the position that it currently is. So, so 
what we're doing, this is the whole concept of impact, is trying to make sure in three verticals, we're looking at the three verticals really being where the major problems are, which is, you know, climate is one vertical, biodiversity loss and sustainable agriculture is another one. And then thirdly is, you know, social and social equality is how do we make sure that we deliver capital into investments in those areas in a way where we either improve the, you know, climate outcomes, the uh, the environmental outcomes or the social outcomes because, you know, every and this shouldn't be like, oh, wow, that's a good idea. The answer is, is well, actually, I feel a bit dumb because why, why are banks not doing that in all circumstances? Why don't they know in all circumstances and ask themselves when they're giving money to a company, am I giving the money and getting a return and they're destroying my children's future by, by using that money? Or are they taking their responsibility seriously? And banks have divorced themselves from this responsibility. They're just going, oh, look, I lend it to the company and it's a company's problem. But actually, it shouldn't be. You know, it's amazing how much effort we have to go through with, you know, know your customer and terrorism laws because your money could be used for money laundering. You know, we're more worried about that than, than you know, you'll gladly hand over your money and lend it to the most environmentally destructive company on the planet. Well, it doesn't work like that. It can't work like that. We've got into the position, we've got into this terrible position globally and environmentally is because we haven't responsibly applied finance. So Sentient Impact Group is really, you know, has a theory of change around it is where, you know, we want to actually make sure we get as much money as possible. And so, you know, we're keen on additional staff and additional capital, but we want to direct it towards investments that generate a positive return which create climate solutions, regenerate the land um, and create a fair and equitable society. So every investment that we do, we want to look at it and make sure that it's delivering a positive outcome as, uh, for, for society as well as a positive financial outcome. Isn't this something that sort of um, other sort of major financiers and lenders are doing anyway through the ESG programs? I mean, what are you doing yeah. that might be sort of different to those? Yeah, it is very different to ESG because ESG is about excluding activities. So I won't do this or I won't do that. This is about actually making sure that you have the intent and the parties that you're dealing with have this very clear intent, Giles, that when they're actually doing stuff, they're doing stuff in a way that actually builds society back better. Mm-hmm. And, and and it is it is a, as a our position as a result is a, as a result of us not considering that when we've applied finance or when companies have acted. That's the only reason why we're in the position. Nothing happens. Nothing's happened um, uh, without without the without the you know use of capital. So our position is a function of the use of capital, you know, and money. Mm. Um, therefore, what we've been doing historically has been wrong. We actually need to change the way we finance people, and it's a big ask. You know, what you're saying is you want to change the whole banking system so that people will lend with a different um, a mindset. But clearly we must because we're in this position because we haven't had that mindset and banks and capital providers haven't taken their responsibility carefully enough to ensure that the money that they're applying in all circumstances, whether it's a loan or whether it's equity, is used in a way that actually builds back society and doesn't actually damage society long term. 
Mm. And so how much capital um, do you have to deploy? How much capital do you wish to deploy? And can you give any examples of the sort of things that you will actually invest in? Because we're sort of talking about sort of ver- different sorts of verticals is one thing, but sort of, you know, sort of in concrete terms, what, what sort of projects would you be interested in? Yeah, so for example, we, we, we um, have two solar funds that came over from IIG because that's our heritage. Our, our heritage was, was the impact investment group. So they managed two solar funds, a solar income fund and solar asset fund. So, so we manage those now. So that's about you know $200 million. We're launching a, a clean energy debt fund um, with one of the large uh, pension funds, which will be available, people will be able to invest in. And then we have what's called our forever fund, um, which is really buying land and carbon um, or farms where there's carbon value on them, which we will um, ensure uh, never actually get cleared. So, you know, when you look at biodiversity, Giles, it's, you know, a lot of carbon projects run 100 years and then people think, oh, yeah, great, I'll, I'll, you know, bring the bulldozer out in 100 years. Well, you know, trees don't actually get those type of hollows that the birds need to live in. It takes them over 100 years to start making those hollows. So you actually need to protect this stuff this stuff permanently, which is what we do with our um, with our forever fund. Um, but in, in the social space, you know, we're, we're looking at um, a whole variety of transactions now at the moment. One is, you know, a, a very efficient uh, building of some 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 housing. Uh, we're looking at um, some effectively uh, industrial centres for social services. You know, so that when when people go and and maybe when they get some uh, health care. Uh, it should be in an integrated way. So in a, in a mall of healthcare, you not only get your healthcare, you can get your dentist, but, um, you know, there'll be social services together. So it becomes easy for people to acquire the social services that they need and they don't have to run to multiple locations to be able to get those type of social services. So it is really, you know, the normal traditional renewables. Uh, it is very much uh, environment and, and trees and, and bioenergy and, and sustainable agriculture, but it's also this social side where um, where we need to actually uh, create better equality and, and try and bring society together rather than have it you know increasingly torn apart. The the increase in um, inequality uh, is so damaging. It, it's it's damaging for people, but it's damaging for society. It's really damaging for society. It's it's not the way that we we want to live, and, and you know, governments still fail today to to actually assess every bill they put through Parliament. It'd be very easy for the Budget Office to say, oh, well, here's a bill going through Parliament. Can you rate that as to whether it's creating greater inequality or whether it's creating greater equality? I mean, it's a pretty it's a pretty core standard to be able to work out as to is this piece of legislation, you know, creating a greater divide in Australia or, or is it bringing us together? But we, we don't do this. These are all, they sound basic, but we're, we're not doing some of this basic stuff. We're not doing some of the basic stuff because we don't sound like we're particularly interested some of the time. Well, I think that's, look, I, I, I think that's right. I think it's a question of focus, uh, Giles. Mm-hmm. I, I honestly think when I've explained this to people, people go, shit, I hadn't really thought of it like that. No, you're right. You know, like, like nothing would have happened. All of these issues that we've got, you know, we, they wouldn't have happened if the people who provide capital in the first place had actually taken responsibility to ensure that the projects that they funded didn't, you know, stuff the place up. But mm. we didn't do that. Okay, mm. next. Well, let's just continue on. And the answer is, is well, no, there's a next. 
There's a next, which is we need to, to actually come up with a, you know, I'd like to come up with a very large financial institution, you know, a global bank, if I was so lucky enough to, which actually operates this way. So we only lend, we're not conflicted. We don't have this conflict where, oh dear, oh, look, you know, I better not say something about this company that's doing something bad because it affects my underwriting activities or, no, no, we need to be very clear here. We need to have an institution which actually works with good companies, uh, who are and know what they're wanting to do and intending to generate a good return without damaging the environment. And we need to have a, a company and an institution which is able to actually speak out. They don't mm. speak out. There's this silence and the banking system is silent. You know, oh, I better not say something because it might affect my profits. It might affect a customer and a customer may not like me. No, we've got a responsibility here. There's, there's a real responsibility here. And, and to anybody you, you talk about how we've got here and you explain it, they tend to get it uh, and, and they don't know why it doesn't change. Um, mm. But I think they all know why it doesn't change. It's, it's people are, are, are greedy. They, they, they think that making a short-term gain is great because it satisfies their short-term need and they're not prepared to consider the longer term. And that's just not, not it's not sustainable. We, we're all from the climate area and we know that it's not sustainable in climate. We're losing species at the fastest rate ever. We're starting to feel that's not sustainable from our environmental and biodiversity point of view. And I can tell you it's not sustainable from a social point of view. So money drives everything and money needs to stand up now because we're at a terrible inflection point from the climate, from, from biodiversity loss. And, you know, from this extended expanse of inequality that we've got running through society. So it's, a, mm. it's, it's important. Let's finish where we started, and that's about politics, with the election coming up on Saturday. Um, what do you expect the result to be? Or if you don't want to have a punt on that, what would you like the result to be? Um, I, um, I, I, uh, I kind of expect the result to be a... Um, um, I expect, expect it to be that a Labor government is formed with um, with uh, a coalition of you know of of members of Parliament. It could well be the Greens. I don't know, and I don't necessarily see the Independents forming a coalition for want of any word. They will remain independent. Um, that's that's what I kind of I think is the likely outcome, or potentially Labor actually get enough seats in their own right and. And what we kind of all think um, that people have had enough is actually shown out in the polls to be that people have had enough. I mean, the integrity issue, which is where it all starts, is probably the most burning issue for people, I, I, I think, overall. And um, people know at the end of the day, regardless how good government is, government that's been in there for probably 10 years needs to change just for the purposes of bringing light in and um, uh, turning the tables over. It's, it's, actually, it's, actually, it's actually good. That's what I'm, I'm expecting. I'm not expecting a you know a huge swing, but I'm expecting uh, I'm expecting yeah. so. And 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 what does this mean then? If um if a Labor government, I mean, I guess its sort of focus might be sort of changed slightly if it's operating in its own right or whether it has to rely on um, support of independents or the Greens. Um, their own targets at the moment are much more progressive than the coalition government's targets, but they're sort of not. They seem to be insufficient for the Paris targets, particularly the medium-term targets, but might it just end up being that by taking away the bollards or the policy bollards, that might actually just sort of let the sort of whole investment flow and um, 
and the business and investors and, and, and finance will kind of overtake those targets just with the sheer weight of capital and all the opportunities that we have in technology and, and, and the change elsewhere in the world? Well, look, I think it could. I think there would be a lot of change, uh, Giles. The first thing will be is obviously, you know, Albo will be, have to take off and go to the, uh, the quad in Asia. And, and I know what's on the agenda in, in the quad and, um, and in Japan, um, effectively, um, uh, he would be able to set Australia's international reputation and position um, because one of the main items there is to be discussing is commitments to green hydrogen and uh, and green shipping. So there'll be an instantaneous opportunity to to um, basically reset Australia's position as a as a um, responsible international participant when it comes around to transition on climate change. Look, I'm expecting a whole bundle of changes to to come through. I mean, I you know we in this election, you know, since the beginning of the the, the start of the, the the pandemic, you know, there's been about you know two and a half billion dollars given to you know CCS and roads for more gas and everything else and Vales Point. Uh, I'm expecting those things to stop, but but importantly. You know, I'm expecting there to be potentially a regulatory system overhaul for the AMC and the AER, and, and I would be thinking potentially that the ERF should be converted to a carbon bank and obviously would have a more enhanced safeguard uh, safeguard mechanism. And um, so I, I think there'll be quite a lot of, of changes. Uh, the Climate Change Authority would probably come back solidly into, into existence and... Um, if I had my own way, um, and uh, stressing the importance, I think, of hydrogen as a position for Australia, it's probably the biggest opportunity this nation's had in a long period of time. I'd like to see them have a minister for hydrogen. Well, we've got a couple of state ministers for hydrogen. Why not a federal minister for yeah, hydrogen? that's what I think. <laughs> Look, Oliver, um, thank you very much for joining us. Um, it won't be long until we find out the result of the election, um, even though some of the fine details might take a week or two to sort out, given the number of postal votes. But uh, look forward to seeing the result and um, look forward to hearing more from you um, about the uh, Sentient Impact Group. And, uh, yeah, well, thank you, Giles. And, uh, and, you know, anybody listening out there, we're after, uh, we're after lots of capital and we're after <laughs> some really good bankers as well, some more employees. So, um, so if anybody is sick of working... In in a, um, a conflicted financial institution with good transaction skills and wants to cross to the other side and join the goodies here, then uh, then uh, we're all arms. Uh, it's a nice place. Uh, I love it. Um, you know, people, self, people, people self-select themselves to organisations like this. There's nothing better than being able to go home to your family and your friends and talk about the type of work that you're doing, feeling really comfortable that everything you're doing is actually adding to uh, society's well-being. Good on you, Oliver. Thanks very much for joining Energy Insiders. And that was Oliver Yates, the uh, former CEO of the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, now um, CEO of Sentient Impact Management, and of course, a former independent candidate for the seat of Kuyong. David, I was particularly intrigued by what he was saying about green hydrogen, um, the big commitments happening in Europe and other places, and particularly in the Middle East, um, the risk of Australia getting left behind. But we saw some bit of action this week from... Um, 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 Andrew Forrest. Now, I know you've been slightly sceptical of his announcements, a lot of MOUs announced rather than actually sort of commitments, but he's hired a few. <laughs> he's got a few more people on board. He's taken an executive role himself, executive chairman. That's kind of out of fashion in corporate governance circles, but he's also brought Andy Vasey, the former um, AGL boss, um, in as head of energy transition um, projects, and he's got a former GE Europe chief as the new CEO of FFI, replacing Julie Shuttleworth, who we interviewed on this podcast just a few weeks ago. What's your assessment of that? 
look, I think I still worry that uh, it's great. I don't think there's ever any doubt that Andrew Forrest was uh, in charge, notwithstanding the importance of corporate governance at, at FFI. And it's great to see senior figures like Andy Vesey uh, coming on board. And no one ever doubts that um, FFI has built up a huge team of people. I think the kind of thing is just how long it actually takes to turn that into revenues and cash. Uh, and there's a lot of people and a lot going on, but it, you need clarity. I also attended a transition conference last week where I heard people, some very senior people talking from, uh, for instance, Rio, but also a fantastic presentation from the renewable person at Maersk, one of the world's biggest container shipping lines. And they, for instance, said that hydrogen isn't going to work for them uh, as a shipping fuel. So for me, it's still much more about let's do stuff in wind and solar, batteries and pumped hydro, advanced inverters. Why do we have to focus so heavily on hydrogen when there's still such a fantastic amount to be done? For instance, Giles, we've seen a lot of talk out of Europe this week about uh, you know, getting up to, I think, it, what is it, 45% renewable energy over there by 2030. But that's not that ambitious, even in itself, in, in a lot of ways, if you want to get yourself away from Russian oil uh, and, and, and gas. I mean, they're doing 40 gigawatts a year of solar as it is. Going for 230 by uh, 2025 is hardly that much of an acceleration. No, look, that's interesting, although I would point out that that 45% of renewable energy is actually for all energy rather than just electricity from the grid. Um, but yes, look, um, David, we don't have a lot of time today. I wanted to get onto the subject of electricity prices. They've been absolutely soaring um, this week. You wrote a very interesting piece on your observations. I'm kind of interested to know, because it hasn't really sort of, you know, sort of touched the sides of the election debate at the moment. And a lot of people point to sort of international factors. But how much can we sheet the blame of the current situation down to lack of policy? Uh, well, I think uh, that's a very tough question, but obviously <laughs> some of it is. Uh, really, as well as the coal and gas prices, which absolutely have gone completely skyrocketing, ballistic, undreamed of, and that's incredibly important. But the other factor is the amount of coal generation outages and gas generation outages. Don't forget the Queensland government-controlled Cleanco, uh, essentially, as I understand it, sold all its gas for Swan Bank E, uh, so that, that 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 doesn't operate. Now, I might have that wrong, in which case I apologise to Cleanco, uh, um, but that's the sort of thing that's been going on. And so we had like up to 30% of the coal generation not actually operating. Uh, and that, uh, and this is the other side of uh, the sort of wounded bull, if you like, uh, whereby the coal generators see they have no future and they absolutely go and maximise price as hard as they can. Now, I, I don't have any problem with that, right? It just, it's, it's a consequence of markets and individual participants acting more or less in their best interests. And that's, that's about markets. And it may be that all these outages are genuine, but I mean, you could very much criticise uh, AGL at Loyang A, where the same unit that went out for a long time a couple of years ago is the unit that's gone out again this time. I mean, that's incredible. I mean, what good is management if they have a problem in a unit that costs them whatever it was, $100 million, and they don't fix the problem, you know? I mean, uh, that's just simply poor mm. management. And you get... Uh, 
Sorry. Especially, especially when they're asking, um, they're arguing for a demerger in the case for actually running that um, unit for another twenty years or so. Well, that's right, you know. And I mean, they criticise uh, uh, not having much management skill, <laughs> not having any skin in the game, and not thinking about shareholders. But actually, the biggest shareholder is Grok now, pretty much. And uh, you know, the actual management of, of, of AGL have got next to no shares. And I might add that CEO's got no background in the electricity industry. Uh, you, you know, and yet he, he runs around telling everyone else that he's the only one that knows what's best. Uh, I think it's it's just, um, it's almost like the federal politics, isn't it, really? You know, talking about <laughs> deficits. Not that we're going to talk about that either, Charles, and we haven't got much time. What should we talk about in that little well, time we well, we haven't got much time left. I'm just going to make the point that, um, yeah, with all this look of, of um, sort of, you know, some extraordinary stuff happening in the electricity market, um, Snowy Hydro was running one of its dual fuel gas generators um, on diesel for about almost 48 hours on Thursday and Friday last week. Um, really quite extraordinary stuff. Um, um, I was told it wasn't because of price. It was more to do with the sort of the situation of the gas network in Victoria. But either way, it's an extraordinary situation where you've got diesel running in the main grid for um, almost like a base load generator. Um, I just think that's just such a testament to failure. So, um, so Charles, like Charles, before... The, the, the point is, prices are going to stay high until more capacity is built. Uh, or until all the existing coal generation uh, is up and running. And, uh, uh, you know, this is what we need to do is to just, this is, just proves that you have to build the new renewable generation. You probably have to take some price pain during the building of it. Uh, and maybe there's a case for paying some of these coal generators to actually be online while you build the new renewable generation, but they have to be available. It's no good paying them. Uh, to provide capacity and then they can't actually deliver it when you actually want it. Oh, I didn't think I'd actually hear you say that, uh, David. But anyway, that's going to be a discussion for the next government. I guess what the problem is, though, to get new capacity, which government do we need to, for that to happen? Uh, look, I, I don't think it's always as much uh, about the official policies as it is about the underlying intent uh, uh, of it. And, uh, you know, on the face of it, Labor's policies, whilst better than the Liberal Party, still are not going to be anywhere near meeting the carbon emissions targets that Australia needs to meet. And if we were to look at some of the other work that's been done around the place, there's an awful lot of Australians' emissions come from scope one and scope two, that is for producing like the coal and gas that actually gets exported and then has a further huge amount of scope three emissions. So, you know, Australia has a lot of responsibility, really, to bear much more than the 1% or 2% that, that shows up in the official figures. And as far as, and uh, you know, policy around EVs, just charging infrastructure, uh, uh, just, but I think the most useful thing, it would be to get some cooperation in the states to get the actual, you know, Queensland's running its own race, uh, which is, hasn't even started yet, really, uh, New South Wales is well down its own track. Victoria's got quite parochial, it seems to me, a little bit just recently. Aemo's sort of running around uh, trying to run a uh, transmission in Victoria as well as the many other problems it's got. What we need is kind of a chief executive of Australian energy, in my opinion, uh, that's, you know, everyone trusts and can get on with the job of making the NIM work like the NIM. 
Well, I think a, having a government um, that wishes to facilitate the energy transition would be at least a starting point. We don't seem to have one of those at the moment. So let's see what happens this weekend. Fingers crossed. And we'll never know. It might actually be a, a flashback to 2010 where you've got a Labour minority government with some independents um, and some powerful voices for maybe doing what they did more than a decade ago and create some interesting institutions and some fine policy. But uh, we'll see what happens. David, I wish you the best of luck with your con- continued um, cycling um, through the Victorian countryside and um, I'm, I'm glad to hear that um, you found a camping spot for your um, electric, e- <laughs> electric car so you could charge up overnight and then sort of bring you back home afterwards and um, look forward to catching up with you in the next episode once we've got a bit more clarity about the election result. Yes, Charles. I, I, I hope we get down to Canberra where I think there's one charger. And, you know, I'm careful about the election results because you and I talked about this with a pollster. Indeed. Uh, so, so uh, yeah, let's talk after the election. Indeed. And look, thanks once again to our sponsors, um, Evergent and Parliament for their ongoing support. Thanks everyone for listening out there. We'll be back again um, after the election and uh, look forward to talking to you then. Energy Insiders was brought to you by Evergen, the market-leading renewable energy software business that optimises residential and commercial solar and battery systems. Evergen enables large numbers of systems to operate as a single fleet, so network operators can use them as a virtual power plant, generating significant value for consumers, network operators and the energy system as a whole. Evergen Software is powering the energy system of the future. Energy Insiders was also brought to you by Pylon. Pylon provides easy-to-use, solid-design software for installers and retailers with pay-as-you-go pricing, no monthly cost and no locking contracts. Join Australia's top solar companies who trust Pylon to design high-resolution, CEC-ready solar proposals.